Well, again, good morning. So glad that all of you decided to join us and you are catching us at a really great time because today we are starting a brand new series titled David. And you already knew that because you're smart people and you surely paid attention to that video that played right before I jumped up here. This is going to be a five-part series. I would encourage you to be here every single week. And if you're kind of doing the mental math right now in your head, this is going to take us right up to Easter here at Grumlaw, which again, full disclosure, we get real excited about Easter around here. But but over the course of the series, uh, we're going to be taking a look at, at the life of David. This is a real person, by the way. This is a real historical fi- figure, uh, not just some person that appears in the Bible. It's a character that if you did grow up going to church you're definitely familiar with, while others of you, you simply might know him as, uh, I don't know, like some king. Either way, I'm guaranteeing you that you are going to learn a lot during this series. I'm particularly excited for this series because if you actually crack open and read this book that we call The Bible for Yourself, which by the way, I would highly, highly recommend, uh, don't just get your weekly dose of Bible here on Sunday mornings. Read that thing for yourself. But, But if you read the Bible for yourself, David is a person that is talked about an awful lot throughout the pages of scripture. In fact, I actually looked this up in preparation for this talk. He has spoken of 971 times throughout the pages of scripture. Second to only who? Right, Jesus. Quick word of advice for those of you who are new to this whole church thing. When the guy up on the stage asks you a question, just shout out Jesus and you're going to be right like 95% of the time. So, If scripture speaks so frequently of David, we we thought it would be a pretty good idea for all of you, regardless of where you kind of find yourself in this whole faith journey, to be familiar with David and understand why it is that he is spoken of so frequently. Now, now David's life, it largely takes place around the 11th century BC, which was a very, very violent time in the history of our world. So, So violent, in fact, that it's actually really difficult for us to even get our heads around. See, we think of ancient warfare, and we immediately go to what maybe Hollywood has shown us. We think of movies like Braveheart. We think of movies like Gladiator. But but I assure you, those films do not do it justice. See, in modern warfare, we kill from a distance. But but in ancient warfare, you killed face to face. You looked into the eyes of your adversary. You you smelled their breath. You, You saw the imperfections of their skin. I mean, it was like right here. The odds of survival, the odds of walking away were extraordinarily low. If you were among the lucky few that did find yourself walking away from the battle, you would scan your body as the adrenaline wore off and tried to account for which blood was yours and which blood was from your opponent. As you would assess your wounds, depending on the depth of the punctures, you now feared infection, something that would take the life of soldiers in almost as great of numbers as the battle itself. After a battle, the, the bodies typically weren't gathered and, and buried in an honorable way. No, in most cases, they simply served as a feast for the birds of the air and the beasts of the field, gorging themselves on human flesh. What a way to start a series, huh? I am sure that all of you are really excited that you decided to tune in here today. Now, to jump here into the life of David, we're going to go to the book of 1 Samuel. Uh, This is a book that we find in the Old Testament. Uh, For those of you who aren't familiar with the Old Testament, kind of the first half of the Bible, and and the Old Testament in large part documents the the life of the ancient Israelites before Jesus steps onto the scene. The Israelites were God's chosen people. It it also happens to be in the Old Testament where we find the story of David, the life of David recorded for us. So as we kick this thing off, we're going to jump here into 1 Samuel chapter 17. It says the Philistines now mustered their army, the Philistines being the opponents of the Israelites, again, God's chosen people, for battle and camp between Succa and Judah and Azekah and Ephes Damim. Saul countered by gathering his Israelite troops near the valley of Elah. 
So the Philistines and Israelites faced each other on opposite hills with the valley between them. Then Goliath, and this is the Goliath that you have surely heard about. This is the Goliath that you read about in storybooks, the giant, a Philistine champion from Gath, came out of the Philistine ranks to face the forces of Israel. He was over nine feet tall. The shaft of his spear was as heavy and thick as a weaver's beam, tipped with an iron spearhead that weighed 15 pounds. Now, now let's make this as really clear. This was not a throwing spear. I, I used to bow fish with this guy named Scott, and I would usually find myself on the front of the boat in those evenings as we were going around, you know, these little ponds and up these rivers. And, you know, I'd have the bow and arrow, and, and I'd be trying to shoot these carp and other bottom-feeding fish. But, but Scott's weapon of choice was this spear that he would thrust into the water, and it would head into the water with such force that in most cases it would literally pin the fish to the bottom of the riverbed or to the bottom of the pond. This was not that kind of spear. No, no, the spear that Goliath had was a stabbing machine. Goliath would undeniably stand in the second rank, kind of behind that first row of soldiers that acted as sort of a human shield. And because of his height, he would literally reach over the first rank and stab and stab and stab and kill and kill and kill. Goliath stood and shouted a taunt across to the Israelites. Why are you all coming out to fight, he called. I am the Philistine champion. But you are only the servants of Saul, Saul being the first king of Israel. Choose one man to come down here and fight. Choose one man to just come down here and fight me. Now Saul, again, the Saul that's mentioned here being Israel's first king, uh, I feel like this is worth explaining and maybe I'm like the only person on the planet that this was confusing for, but I remember being like a fourth, fifth grader and being so confused about Saul because there's a Saul that is spoken about in the Old Testament, the one that we're referring to here, the first king of Israel, but there's another Saul, a much more popular Saul that we find in the New Testament who would later become Paul. Uh, he became known to and referred to as Paul who was like the greatest missionary in the history of the world. He was the one that spread the message of Jesus around all around the ancient Mediterranean world. And, and I remember as a fairly young child thinking to myself, my goodness, this Saul guy lived like a long, long time. So important to note, different Saul in the Old Testament, first king of Israel, than the Saul who would later become Paul, kind of the hero of the New Testament. The Goliath continues. He says, if he kills me, if he's saying, hey, if he, this, this Israelite challenger happens to kill me, Goliath, then we will be your slaves. He, he's speaking of the entire Israelite nation. He's speaking of the entire Philistine nation. He's saying, okay, if this Israelite guy kills me, then the Philistines will become slaves to the Israelites. But if I kill him, which is the far more likely outcome, you will be our slaves, as in all of the Israelites. I defy the armies of Israel today. Send me a man who will fight me. When Saul and the Israelites heard this, they were terrified and deeply shaken, absolutely terrified. And, and this went on for weeks and weeks and weeks. Every single day, in fact, twice a day, Goliath coming out and taunting the Israelites, daring just one person to fight him. And the Israelite king, who, who back in those days wasn't in just some political office, but, but was expected to be the nation's war hero, was expected to be that war general, he retreated. Saul did nothing. He had completely succumbed to fear. And, and the Israelite people are looking around thinking to themselves, what are we going to do? Saul is supposed to be our general. In fact, part of the very reason that Saul was selected as Israel's king was because of his height, his physical appearance. He was a very tall, handsome man. They would feel like because he is such a tall, strong person, they have an advantage in the battlefield, but again, nowhere to be found. So day after day, 
as Goliath challenges Israel, the Israelites are looking around going, where is our king? Where is Saul? That their hope had been placed in their king. So they waited, hoping that Saul would soon emerge. And right here is where our story begins to intersect with the story of these ancient people. Because here's what's true of every single one of us. This isn't just a Christian thing, I promise you. This is a human being thing. We place our hope in what we depend on. We place our hope in who we depend on. And so when who or what we place our hope in disappoints us, don't miss this, the measure of our hope often becomes the measure of our disappointment or our disdain or anger or our frustration, maybe even our hatred. This is why every single one of us have the potential to resent our parents or a spouse more than anyone else. Because so often our hope lies, or even perhaps till this day, still does lie on those particular people. See, your annoying neighbor doesn't have the ability to drum up this type of disappointment or anger because you don't place your hope in your neighbor. Saul is conspicuously missing. And with each day that passes without him emerging from his tent, his credibility slowly but surely drifts away. And as his credibility waned, so did the hope of the Israelite people. Now, now this stalemate in a lot of ways between Goliath and the Israelite army really brings to life the fact that God never wanted Israel to have a king in the first place. God was supposed to be their king, the king of this chosen people. And God knew that wherever we place our trust, that's where we place our hope. And God did not want them placing their hope in a mere mortal. But instead, God wanted Israel to place their hope in him. This is something that he desires for every one of you watching right now as well. In fact, about 400 years prior to these events, God had established Israel as a theocracy. It was a nation of laws administered by judges. So God was supposed to sit alone at the top as king, and the judges were to administer the laws that were given to them by God himself, which at this point in history was completely unprecedented. I mean, shoot, I mean, you just look at the the Israelites' rescue from Egypt. Egypt had a pharaoh, which was just kind of a fancy way of saying king. But but Israel, they kind of start looking around and thinking to themselves, well, everybody else has a king. Why don't we have a king? Even though the very God who rescued them from Egypt, parting entire seas along the way, told them that this is how they ought to be governed, that they start saying to themselves, "Well, well, she got a cookie. How come I didn't get a cookie? They all have kings. How come we don't have a king? And really just years before this incident with Goliath, the nation of Israel got what they wanted. Because back at this point, there, there wasn't a king. They, they go to this prophet, and a prophet was just somebody who spoke on behalf of God. That They go to the prophet Samuel, and, and they begin to plead their case for a king. Look, they told him, you are now old, which Samuel had to be like, that's pretty offensive. And, and your sons are not like you. At this point, Samuel's sons were acting as the judges, but they weren't acting in according to God's law. They were abusing their power, that they were doing whatever pleased them. They're going, your sons aren't really doing what the judges were supposed to do. So, so he says, give us a king to judge us like all the other nations have. I mean, come on, Samuel, all the cool kids have a king. We want one too. And so Samuel, knowing this was not God's plan, he goes to God and he asks what to do. Samuel was displeased with their request, 
and he went to the Lord for guidance. Notice his first reaction in this incident. We, we would all be wise to take notes from Samuel. Do everything. This is how God replies, and, and this has to be much to Samuel's surprise. Do everything they say to you. For, for they are rejecting me, not you. They don't want me to be their king any longer. And, and I don't know about all of you, but when I read that, there's like this, this deep sadness that comes over me. I, I think about the deep hurt that, that God must have felt in this moment as yet again, the people he loved so dearly were rejecting him. It would be no different that upon my son Malachi turning 18 years old, he took one look at me and said, you're no longer my dad. I'm done with you. And then walked away. God continues to says, do as they ask, but solemnly warn them about the way a king will reign over them. In other words, life with a king is not as good as they have dreamt it up in their heads. Look forward to taxes Look forward to a percentage of your crops and livestock getting shoved out the door. Your sons are going to be drafted. Your daughters are going to become the servants of the king. Your best land is going to go to him. But despite all the warnings, they still said, we want our king. And ironically, it was this insistence on a king that set the stage for one of the most detailed narrative accounts in all of ancient literature. The story, the life of King David. And as you will soon see, it was Israel's second king that was undoubtedly Israel's greatest king, but not because of his power, not because of his war success, not even because he was perfect. No, those of you who are familiar with the story of David, you know that he was far from it. It was something far more subtle. Though David displayed extraordinary confidence at times, more than anything else, King David was humble. Humility is this common thread that we see all throughout his life. King David, rather than despising the laws, he loved the law of God. Every other king's priority was to be number one, was to literally be the law. But because David loved God, and because he knew that the law came from God and was there to protect the very people that God loved, David loved the law. Even, and this is so important, even when it condemned him. See, see, any other king, if the law condemns you, you just change the law. You're the law, but not David. He, he allowed himself over and over again to be broken over God's law. That that conviction that the law was a gift from God provided David with extraordinary clarity. Throughout his reign, King David was never confused about the identity of Israel's true king. Despite his extraordinary power, despite his incredible influence, he never confused this. For a lot of us, we can't necessarily say the same. Success confuses the best of us. I mean, every single one of us, we've experienced this. I mean, just a little bit of success and suddenly we are sitting on the thrones of our lives. And once you're on the throne of your own life, we, we place our hope in ourselves because, again, we place our hope in who or what we depend on. Now, we catch a glimpse of this extraordinary perspective, this incredible humility from David 
when he was just 15 years old as some no-name shepherd. He shows up to the battle lines between the Israelites and the Philistines with a care package for his older brothers who are actually fighting in the Israelite army. And like any curious teenager, he hears the commotion that's kind of happening on the front lines, and so he goes in for a closer look, only to find this giant, this behemoth, Goliath, day after day after day, taunting the Israelites. And rather than being terrified, like Saul, like the king, like the army, like his very brothers, David is, (laughs) he's offended. He cannot believe that someone, even if this someone is a nine-foot killing machine, would dare defy the Israelites, that the God's chosen people, and in turn, defy the living God. And he begins this line of questioning that, that reveals a mindset, that reveals a clarity that we see as a pattern all throughout his life. He, he asks, and, and think how ludicrous this would have sounded coming from the lips of a 15-year-old boy. David asked the soldiers standing nearby, what will a man get for killing this Philistine and and ending his defiance of Israel? And and they're looking down on him, like like way down, thinking, you got to be asking for a friend, right? I mean, maybe you're asking for like one of your brothers. And and what do you mean? We don't really like your tone, defiance of Israel. You don't know what you're talking about, little boy. That this man, this giant that stands before you is less a man and more of like this war god. Stop taking this so personally. That This is military stuff. You wouldn't understand. David isn't through with his inquiries. He says, who is this pagan Philistine anyway? That, that he is allowed to defy the armies of the living God. Nobody else saw it this way. David is offended that that some guy, whether he's nine or 20 foot tall for that matter, would dare defy the living God. And David chooses his words carefully here. It's not an accident that he refers to him as a pagan. See, a pagan is someone who is outside of the covenant of God, which means that he is outside of the protection of God. Goliath and the Philistines are attempting to take land that was promised to God's chosen people by God himself. So David's looking around going, who does this guy think he is? And how come nobody is doing anything about it? So word gets back to Saul that there's actually somebody out there talking about taking Goliath on. This is somebody who's finally ready to accept this challenge that that Goliath has continued to taunt the Israelites with. And when David comes walking into Saul's tent, well, you can imagine, Saul reacts exactly how you would probably imagine he would react. He he immediately dismisses him. This is no warrior. This is some small, feeble shepherd boy who has never seen a day of battle in his life. But before David walks his way out of the tent, he looks right into the eyes of the king and the eyes of Saul. He says, I want to tell you a story. That there was a time when I was a shepherd and a, and a lion came along and snatched up one of my sheep. But rather than just simply counting that sheep as a loss, I left the other sheep and I pursued that lion and I defeated that lion and I took my sheep back. That there was another time similarly where a bear came along and snatched up one of my sheep. And rather than being you know, trapped and, and consumed with fear, I pursued the bear, I left the other sheep behind and I went and I killed that bear and I got my sheep back. I have done this to both lions and bears, and I'll do it to this pagan Philistine too. 
for he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear will rescue me from this Philistine. David was viewing this in a way that nobody else saw it. That there was such clarity. An enemy of the Lord's people is an enemy of God. Goliath isn't simply defying an army. He is defying God himself. David, even at 15 years old, he had wrapped his life around this assumption, and we see this all throughout his 40-year reign as king, that the man or woman whose hope is in the Lord need not fear. Need not fear anything or anyone. And so he looks right into the eyes of the king and says, let me do what nobody else is willing to do. Let me do what you saw the king are not willing to do. Later on, we actually get a glimpse into the mind of David through a book called Psalms. Psalms is the, this collection of songs and, and poems and, and prayers. And, and David, he authored many of these. And in the 25th chapter of the book of Psalms, he says, O Lord, I give my life to you. I, I trust in you, my God. Do not let me be disgraced or let my enemies rejoice in my defeat. David is declaring to God, God, I put my trust in you. Not in my position, not in my power, certainly not in my own abilities. No, God, I put my trust in you and in you alone, which gives me extraordinary confidence to face those who oppose me. Lead me by your truth and teach me, for you are the God who saves me. All day long, I put my hope in you, God. Such extraordinary humility in those words, especially coming from a king. And because of the hope he placed in God, not himself, he confidently strolled down to the battlefield. And every single one of you, whether you grew up in church or not, you know how the story goes. He makes his way down to face Goliath as groans and embarrassment surely turned to laughter and snickering from both sides, from the Philistines and the Israelites. And you have to imagine there was a wave of panic that went over the Israelite army. They're like, okay, this isn't just some like cute display. If this guy loses and he is going to lose, we are going to become slaves to the Philistines. And David, amidst all the laughter, amidst all the panic, he declared to Goliath, he looked this giant in the eye who was snickering and laughing at him. He, he looked at the Philistines, he looked at the nation of Israel, and he declared, the battle belongs to the Lord. And then he killed the giant. And, and the Philistines made a tragic decision after their war hero fell. They turned and they ran. And the Israelites, for at least a moment, recognized who went before them. And the slaughter of the Philistines lasted all night long. And David, just like that, became the most popular person in all of Israel, all because he did what King Saul failed to do. Those whose hope is in the Lord, they see clearly, they act confidently, and they walk humbly. Say those three things with me. They see clearly, 
They act confidently and they walk humbly. This is so important. Please don't miss this. Those whose hope is in the Lord, they recognize they can't control outcomes because they have little control over the variables required to control the outcome. That's true of every single one of our lives. None of us, I don't care how powerful you are, can control outcomes. There are too many variables involved. So instead, those whose hope is in the Lord, they lean the weight of their lives against the one who has the whole world, all the variables in his hands. What if every single morning, like David, you began to declare, lead me by your truth and teach me, for you are the God who saves me. All day long, I put my hope in you. Imagine what might change in your life if every single morning you made this declaration. Even even if you don't totally know if it's true yet. Imagine what might change in your life if during the most stressful time at your job or at your home, you whispered this to yourself, lead me by your truth and teach me for you are the God who saves me. All day long, all day long, I put my hope in you. Imagine what might change if, if when you're on the absolute mountaintop of success, you grounded yourself on the truth, lead me by your truth and teach me for you are the God who saves me. All day long, I put my hope in you. You recognize that good or bad, you can't control outcomes because you have little control over the variables required to control the outcome. And so instead, you put your trust, you you put your hope in the one who, who holds it all in his hands. There are certain life experiences um, that, yes, even as a pastor, test your faith. Uh, My wife and I have have definitely been on one of those journeys now for right about at a year. Uh, See, back in March of uh, 2020, we brought home our third child, uh, this precious baby little boy right there, at four months old, picked him up from the hospital, and in just the four short months of his life, he had been through unspeakable abuse, unspeakable trauma, experienced in four months what just about every single one of us will never experience in a lifetime. And over the last year, we have had to kind of sit back as court dates have been delayed, as we have walked through this foster process and the desire to, to adopt him, and we have watched people whom we haven't felt like a second (laughs) deserve a second or a third or a fourth chance get those opportunities. And we wanted to rip our hair out and we've been angry and we're going, why is this taking so long? We we just want to legally be able to be like, this is our child over and over and over again. Andrea and I have had to declare this. Even when it's hard to believe Lead me by your truth and teach me, for you are the God who saves me all day long. God, all day long, I choose to put my hope in you. I cannot control the outcome of the situation with my son because I have little to no control of the variables required to control the outcome. 
And so I choose, and it's a choice, to put my trust in the God of the universe who holds it all in his hands. And even if this does not go according to my plan, I will still choose to put my trust and my hope in him. David was Israel's greatest king because as king, he never confused himself with the king. But in those early years, it was not always the case. And we'll pick it up right there next week.